Hey, how many people have been to the concert so far? Awesome. I have not been yet. Actually, I have been um, out of town these last couple of days. My daughter, uh, Grace, graduated with her master's degree in teaching uh, from down in San Diego. And her, yeah, we can applaud for Grace. Thank you. That's sweet. Um, and she missed her college graduation. It was a COVID casualty. So we were like, we're definitely going to that. And so uh, I've been down there, but flew back late last night. And I am pumped to be out here um, today at 3.30. So I hope to see you then, um, as well as at the Christmas Eve services. And then next Sunday, I should mention, we're just going to have one service on Christmas Day at 11 o'clock. So we hope to see you then. Hey, I also was a, a tiny bit disappointed because we were planning on having um, one of our missionaries from uh Aslan Child Rescue here with us today. They are uh, representing the project that we're doing through our Advent Conspiracy uh, in Mali. So we're doing four different projects. Uh, The Philippines, the Steve Newman Servant Leadership Fund here, Teen Challenge in California, and then we're doing uh, projects in Mali. If you don't know where Mali is, uh, Google it, pray for it. It is actually the eighth largest uh, country in Africa, and it's uh, 20 million people in Northwest Africa, uh, torn by poverty, uh, torn by uh, war, and there's only a 3% Christian. It's a predominantly Muslim country, uh, less than 3% Christian, actually. But one of the very cool things that these Christians are doing is trying to reach their, their country through servant leadership. Um, one of the places they do that um, is at a hospital um, that actually is doing some amazing work to show some of those pictures I know is a little traumatic. I thought, should we even show those things in church? And yet we need to know that's what happens when there is authoritative leadership in a country like Mali and war tears apart families and children. And so we're saying there's a different way through Christ. It's a way of servant leadership. They're doing it at this hospital. Um, They're also doing it at a place called Bethel uh, Bible Institute, where they are training uh, the next generation of pastoral uh, leaders and church leaders that are especially reaching out with compassion ministries, care ministries, food, uh, clothing, care, those kind of things um, in Mali. So I wanted you to see uh, just some of those pictures. And as we've been saying all along, we really encourage you to give generously. We have kind of an ambitious Advent conspiracy this year. um, So I hope that you are able to participate um, in that. And it is going to change lives um, all around the world. All right. Well, hey, uh, when you came in, I hope you received some message notes. You're going to want to grab those. You're going to want to keep a Bible nearby as well, because we are jumping into uh, our third message in this Christmas series called Born for This. So this Christmas, we're looking at uh, the, 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 the mission of Christ. What was Christ born for as it's revealed to us in the miracle of Christmas? And so we started the first week by looking at the fact uh, that Jesus was born to serve. He came and took on the very nature of a servant. That's why we're doing servant leadership projects around the world. We also saw the the next week, uh, Steve did a great job talking us through that Christ was born uh, to be Lord of all. And today we're going to look at what Jesus himself actually says uh, that he was born for in uh, Mark, I'm sorry, in Luke chapter 9. Jesus says it like this, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So uh, the last two weeks, we have been looking at uh, what I call Christmas, not Christmas, 
passages. So in other words, they're super important passages of Scripture, great passages of Scripture, uh, but there's no shepherds in them, there's no uh, angels, there's no children, you know, babies wrapped in swaddling clothes, and yet these passages actually teach us so much about the purpose of Christmas. So we've been digging into those. Um, And today we're going to look at another completely Christmas, not Christmas story. In fact, I would say it is something that you probably have maybe never even connected with Christmas at all, but I think it foreshadows what happened with Christ coming in a very powerful way. I think maybe one of the most powerful ways um, in the Old Testament. And I'm talking about the Old Testament book of Jonah, the Old Testament book of Jonah. So if you'd like to open up to the book of Jonah to follow along, I just want to kind of tell that story. And I want you to try to imagine, if you can, that you are out on a boat on the Mediterranean Sea, and it is a dark and very stormy night. You see, even the most experienced sailors on this uh, ship are, are starting to panic because uh, they're, they're, they're getting bounced around. They're even, th- those guys are getting uh, seasick. They're helpless to stop the wind and the waves that are pounding against their boat. Everything that's not tied down has already been thrown overboard. And yet these experienced sailors are starting to think, you know what, I think we might be going down with the ship. And so these sailors did what sailors did in that day, and, and they said uh, they cast lots to see who is it that would, uh, would be, the, uh, the, be the, the one that would cause this. You see, the, just like there's no atheist in a foxhole, there are no atheists in a sinking ship. And so these sailors were from all sorts of different pagan backgrounds, but all of them began to cry out to their God. And still nothing happens. And so, as I said, they they cast lots to see who is it that has so offended the gods that this storm is coming against their boat. And they cast the lots and the dice fall of all people to a guy who's sleeping down in the bottom of the boat, a Hebrew prophet by the name of Jonah that they'd picked up on their last stop and wanted to go as far west as he could all the way um, to Tarshish. Now, the deal is, if you know the story, Jonah should have never been on the boat in the first place, right? Jonah was a prophet of God. God came to Jonah and told Jonah, I want you to go east and preach to the great city of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, and it was the most vile and most violent people in all of the world at that time. Not only Jonah, but all of the Jewish people despised those Ninevites. There's actually recording of some of the horrendous kind of things that Ninevites do. They would, they would cut off the limbs of their enemies. They would pull out tongues. They would put people's bodies as on the city walls as a way of, you know, deterring uh, people, keeping people in control. And it was a very effective thing. And so God, of all things, tells his prophet Jonah, I want you to go to the farthest away kind of people that you can imagine. The people that have rejected God, the people that have forgotten God, the people that never knew God, Jonah, I want you to go to them. And so head east to uh, Nineveh. And what does Jonah do? He gets on a boat. He says, no way, I'm not doing it. He gets on a boat and he heads just the exact opposite direction uh, to Tarshish, which is far away as they could go. So the lot falls on Jonah and the, the, the Jonah says, you're right, I'm found out. I am running away from God. He fesses up um, to the sailors on the boat. He says, go ahead, throw me overboard. And that's what they do. They pick this Hebrew prophet up and they throw him overboard. 
And the God who created all of the world, who made the wind and the waves, speaks to the wind and the waves and tells them to quiet down. And as soon as Jonah is thrown overboard, there is a calm that comes over the sea. And then there's this great scripture in chapter 1, verse 16, where it says these idol-worshiping sailors who just moments before had been calling out to all sorts of crazy different idols, it says they were awestruck by the Lord's great power. And so they offered him a sacrifice and they vowed to serve him. And what we have right now in the story of Jonah is a very strange picture. You have got a boat full of pagan sailors all praising and worshiping the one true God. And the prophet, who should have known better, has been thrown overboard and is sinking to the bottom of the sea. What a strange picture that is. And yet, you probably know what happens next. God sends a great fish. And this great fish swallows up Jonah. And Jonah is inside the belly of this fish for three days and three nights. And I don't know about you, but there is nothing like spending time in the belly of a fish to make you kind of reevaluate life. And um, that's what Jonah does. And he says, God, all right, I'm so sorry about this. And you're the God. And and so he he repents. And this great fish spits Jonah out onto the shore. And there, covered with seaweed and, and fish guts, God speaks to Jonah again. And he says, Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh. Those evil people need to hear my message. And this time, Jonah's not happy about it. But he relents, and so he starts to head east to Nineveh. He finally gets to the city of Nineveh, and he begins to preach his message. You can tell his heart is not in this thing at all, because he walks around, and Jonah, the great prophet, preaches a five-word message, at least five words in Hebrew. It's a little more in English. And I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, seriously, a five-word sermon? How do I go to that church? But his sermon is actually, it's only, it's short, but it's super direct. This is what he says in Jonah 3, 4. He says, 40 days and Nineveh, unless you repent, you will be destroyed. You will be overthrown. And as great as a miracle as a fish swallowing Jonah is what happens next. Because the Ninevites hear that message and they repent. Look at what chapter 3 says, and starting in verse 8. It says, The Ninevites, after this little sermon, believed God. And a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth, which was a sign of, of their repentance. And, and then it says, uh, And even the king of Nineveh says, Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When the God saw that they had, what, they had, uh, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, God relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. What an amazing miracle that is. It's the greatest revival in, in all of the, the Bible, one of the great revivals in all of history. And the people of Nineveh are turning to God. And the angels are rejoicing in heaven that these people far from God had heard the message and now are coming to God. And what does Jonah do? He pouts in the corner, right? The angels are throwing a party, but the only party that Jonah is throwing is a pity party. He's just so upset that God would show that kind of compassion to these far people that he goes out of the city. He sits down under the vine and the story ends with these very strange pictures in mind. 
You have a boat full of pagan sailors that have all turned to God and are worshiping him. You have 120,000 Ninevites, the previously most evil and wicked people in all of the known world at that time, all turning to God. And you have the Hebrew prophet who should have known better, pouting under a vine, missing out on the whole thing. So that's part of the story of Jonah. And what I want to suggest today, that in some surprising ways, the story of Jonah is an Old Testament Christmas story. At the very least, it is the Old Testament's John 3.16, because it reminds us in a very powerful way, maybe the clearest statement in all of the Hebrew scriptures, that God loves the whole world including the wicked and rebellious. And he wants, God wants to be known among all nations. Christ came for all people and all nations. How do I know this? Well, look at the Christmas story when it's proclaimed to the, uh, by the angels to the shepherds. So you know the story. The shepherds are out tending their flocks by night and angels appear to them. And this is what God says to the shepherds uh, through the angels. He says, do not be afraid. The angels always have to start with that because people freak out when they see the angels. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for who? Will you say that with me for who? Who do, who's the good news for? Man, it's for all the people. Because today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he is the Messiah, the Lord. And what I want to do for the rest of our short time together here is I want to look a little bit at the story of Jonah and a little bit at the familiar Christmas stories, and I want us to see some truths that start to emerge from that. So some lessons from Jonah and Christmas, starting with this one. Jonah and Christmas show us the extreme lengths that God is willing to go to get his message to us. It shows the extreme measures that God will go to get his message to us. All right, so as you think about the story of Jonah, for me, one of the fascinating things about the whole story of Jonah is how uh, uh, even uh, nature bends to the will of God, right? There's all these kind of natural miracles that occur. You know, people would say they're coincidences, but they're not coincidences. At just the right time, God sends a boat, and then God sends a storm. And then God stops a storm, and then Jonah gets thrown overboard, and God sends a great fish. The Swiss fish swallows Jonah at just the right time. The fish spits the Jonah out at just the right time. God causes the people of Nineveh uh, to turn to him, uh, including their king, and to open their hearts with just a five-word sermon. God causes this vine to grow up over Jonah. God causes the vine to wither over Jonah. And all of it all of that, God doing all of those things, is a part of him getting his message to people that were very far from him. So that the people of Nineveh could hear good, this good news no matter what. And that same kind of thing is also true in the Christmas story. Just, just think about it, right? God causes a virgin to become pregnant. And her fiancé still goes through with marrying her. God uses a Roman census to get this couple, Joseph and Mary, to Bethlehem so that an ancient prophecy can be fulfilled. God uses a full in, something that we would just see as an inconvenience, as a major part of the story to teach us about the humanity and the humility and the servant nature of his son, Jesus Christ. God uses angels to call shepherds. God uses a star in the sky to bring wise men, pagan wise men, from hundreds of miles away, all to remind us that this baby born is a king for who? For all people. 
And all of this is speaking to the fact that God is willing to do whatever it takes to get his message across. Whatever it takes. But it's not just the miracles and and the nature uh, of the story that reminds me of this. We actually see God's willingness to go to great extremes to us in even his timing of this event. There's a very important kind of Christmas, not Christmas passage in uh, Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4 verse 5 says this. But when the time, set time had fully come, I learned it like this, when the fullness of time had arrived. So when the time was full, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. So that people like us could actually be in a relationship with God. God looked for just the right time. And when time was full, he sent his son. And that fullness of time speaks to all sorts of different reasons. There's some really powerful human reasons to what the fullness of time is. For one, we know that the the Roman occupiers of of the Jewish people, the Jewish people were so fed up with it that they were looking for a Messiah anywhere that they could look. But while the, the Roman people oppressed them, there also were some really positive things that the Roman occupiers provided that helped not so much Jesus being born, but his message getting out. They call it the Pax Romana, right? Rome was the superpower of the world, and they brought this peace of Rome across the land. And so it allowed for things like new roads to be built and new transportation, modes of transportation uh, to be available. It, it caused things like a common language, uh, Koine Greek. It's the, the language of the New Testament, right? It was the common language of that day, a trade language, because people were trading all over the world. And before that time, there wasn't a common language that would have been so easy for us to get like the New Testament as it's recorded to us. And all of this are natural things, even the, the Greek kind of thought allowed for uh, kind of a, a new sort of logic and creative thinking that allowed a truth like the word became flesh and made its dwelling among us to be understood. There were some places they would just couldn't have comprehended those things. And you see, those are just the human reasons. But we also see that God chooses just the right time to fulfill his ancient prophecies of the location and the timing and our need for a savior. You see, the law, the sacrificial system that, that, that Paul writes about there in Galatians 4 had shown itself to fall short of helping people come into a real relationship with God. They just couldn't do it. They just couldn't be good enough. There was this sin that continued to plague us, and we needed a Savior. And so at just the right time, God is working. God is working. And at just the right time, he sends us exactly what we need. Hey, as I was thinking about this, I I saw this video. It's a couple minutes long, but I think it is worth showing you because to me it kind of speaks to some of this. It's a couple minutes long, so you've got to watch it to the end, uh, but watch it and tell me if you think it kind of speaks to this as well. Let's take a look.
Isn't that sweet? Just so you know, that's a commercial trying to get you to do more squats and lift a kettlebell. (laughs) But don't you love that? Because all along, the grandpa's doing something and you just can't figure it out. He's getting up early. He's lifting the weights. He's, you know, doing whatever he can. He puts this picture. You can't quite see what the picture is, but he puts this picture in front of him and motivated by this, this picture that he's got his eyes on. He's doing whatever it takes to get ready so that he can have that moment with his precious grandchild, right? And that speaks to what God has been doing throughout history with his eyes on us. He's been working. He's been getting ready. He's been doing everything that it takes so at the fullness of time, he could send his son, Jesus Christ, into the world so that he could have the special moment of salvation with us so that we could be in relationship with God. He's been working. He's been doing all those things. And and I don't know about you, but have you ever loved someone so much that it causes you to just do crazy stuff, right? You see it all the time. And God did it. It caused him to do something crazy, like send a prophet to Nineveh, to send one of his best and brightest to Nineveh and to take on flesh and become a man, take on the very nature of a servant to seek and save the lost so that he could rescue us from sin. And so we see that Jonah and Christmas just show us the extreme measures that God will go to to get his message. But you know what else? Jonah and Christmas prove once and for all that that God's love is truly for all people everywhere, right? We see it with the Ninevites, but think about some of the surprising characters uh, that are making up their little figurines in your nativity scene at home today. But if you think about it, think of just some of the surprising characters that God uses. We've talked about some of them. Think about shepherds, right? Shepherds, we talk about this, it seems like every Christmas time, but shepherds were the lowest of the low on the, you know, the social ladder. Shepherds were, were uh, actually the word shepherd was sometimes used as a derogatory term, Yeah, shepherd, right? Because they were this kind of unclean, uneducated group. They were also very a trustworthy group. Uh, Maybe you've heard before that a shepherd's testimony couldn't be trusted in in court. A shepherd wouldn't be welcomed into the temple. And so just like the, the women that were the first ones to see the risen Christ at the tomb, what a surprise it is to see shepherds to be the first one to greet Christ in the manger. By the way, think about this. If you were making up this story, like a lot of people say it's just a made-up story, if you were making up a story to try to promote Jesus, you would not have shepherds be the first people to go and see him. That's just not what you would have done. But it's not just shepherds, it's the, the wise men. And we love the idea that, hey, they were wise men, they were wise, they were looking for Jesus. But to most of the Jews of that day, they were just a, a group of Gentiles, another group of ceremonially unclean people who came from afar Jesus' own people didn't quite recognize him in the same way that these Gentile wise men did. Or what about Mary and Joseph? At least they were good Jewish kids. But seriously, pregnant, a virgin, I don't know if that all checks out, right? And Joseph, I mean, even after they get married, he's a carpenter from Nazareth. And all of this is God saying that his love is truly for all people everywhere. You see, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. God's love is for you. Friends, the message of Jonah and the message of Christmas screams, it doesn't matter. God's love is for all people. 
And then what happens is this little baby in the manger grows up and he starts to tell these crazy stories about a father who's been rejected by the son and yet still the father waits and watches and when he sees even the sinful son coming back, the father runs to him and throws his arms around him. And Jesus tells a story about a shepherd that if you could imagine this, would leave 99 good sheep to go find the one. And then we see Jesus grow up and we see him reaching out to a, 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 an outcast woman by a well and offering her living water. We see Jesus not giving up on people possessed by demons that everybody else had cast aside. He sees the value in those people. We see Jesus looking up into a tree because there's a tax collector named Zacchaeus up there. He says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to go to your house today. And people say, Jesus, what are you doing going to all of these people? And Jesus says, oh, the healthy don't need a doctor. It's the sick that need a doctor. And so I came to seek and to save the lost, all of those people that are far from him. Jesus is born for you and for me. So this good news for all people um, is reflected reflected probably most clearly in maybe Christianity's most famous verse, right? John 3.16. We heard it already read uh, earlier. Um, John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And we read that and we know that, but sometimes we forget that word world. What is that? Who, who's included in the world? What, who's the, the world? Um, and so I actually heard someone recently, to just kind of understand this a little more, start to make a list of some of the people that make up the world. Because who is uh, the world? It's all people. So we just kind of took the alphabet and, and started to write some things down, and I've added a few to it. Um, it's going to take a minute. But I want you to know that God came for and loves airline pilots and attorneys and ambulance drivers and acrobats and astrologers and artists. He loves the Amish, Anglicans, adulterers, agnostics, atheists, the arrogant, the absent-minded. See, God's love is for all people. B, God came for babies and babysitters and Baptists and boy bands and blondes and brunettes and blue hairs. He came for the bullied and the bullies. He came for the brave, the bossy, the bitter, the bummed out, the burned out, the broken, and the broke. He came for all people. See, God loved the world so much that he came for Canadians and Cambodians. He came for Cubans and Mark Cuban. He came for CEOs and custodians and cooks and crooks and criers and cutters and crystal meth users and critics and cat lovers. He came for all people. He came for dads and Democrats and dishwashers and deadbeats and drag racers and drag queens and drama queens and disc jockeys. And how big is God's love? He even came for Dodger fans. Jesus came for the Elvis impersonators, the environmental activists, the evolutionists, the exaggerators, the emoji users, and Eminem. He came for the faithless and the faithful. He came for the fearful and the fearless, the forgotten and the forgotten, the frustrated and the finicky. Gee, he came for the good, the grateful, the generous, the greedy, the gassy, the glamorous, the gullible, the grouchy, the guilty. You see, God's love is for all people. He came for the hard workers and the hardly working. He came for the homeless and the homosexual and the homophobic and the Harley rider and the hipster at the same time. How big is God's love? He came for every person in India. That's 1.3 billion people. 
And he came for every person in Indiana. That's about 7 million people. He came for introverts and influencers and IRS agents. Uh, he came for janitors and jugglers and late night jammers. He came for late night, late, late night hosts named Jimmy K. He came for Chloe, Courtney, Kim, Kendall, Kylie. Came for all the Kardashians. Came for Kanye. And he came for all the Karens. He came for the lazy, the loud, the lethargic, the landscaper, the lawyer, the lunch ladies, the latte lovers, and the left-handed. He came for mimes and Mennonites and missionaries and moms and mask wearers and the mischievous. He came for Miley and Madonna. He came for the nerdy, the needy, the narrow-minded, the narcissistic. He came for the New York Knicks. You guys, he came for Ninevites. He came for Ninevites back then, and he came for Ninevites still today. Do you know that's a place in Iraq? I've actually met people that are, are call themselves Ninevites. It's actually one of the strongest uh, Christian groups in, in the Middle East, and, and God came for them. He came for the obese, the obnoxious, the old-fashioned. He came for every name that you will ever see in an obituary. He came for preachers and pimps and politicians and police officers, protesters, progressives, pornographers, prostitutes, pill poppers, the prideful, and he came for the proud boys. He came for the quiet, the quitter, the questioning. He came for the Queen of England and also for Queen Latifah. He came for Russians and Rwandans. He came for real estate agents, Republicans, road ragers, the responsible, the rebellious, the reclusive. He came for every person who's filled with regret today. He came for the sassy, the spunky, the serious, the sarcastic. He came for South Africans and Somalis. He came for smokers and strippers and those that wear house slippers. He came for teenagers and telemarketers, transgressors, transgenders, talented, timid, and everybody that feels like a train wreck today. He came for the victorious, the victims, the vegetarians, the vegans, the vaccinated people from Virginia. He came for the well-behaved and the wicked. He came for the warriors. Because we live in Lodi, he came for the winemakers. He came for the waitress that works at the Waffle House and the woman that weighs you in at Weight Watchers. He came for x-ray technicians, the xenophobic, the xylophone players. That, that's all I could think of for that one. He came for the young, the yuppies, the yodlers. He came for loud yawners. He came for the zealous, the zany. He came for the zookeepers. And oh yeah, I almost forgot one. He came for you and me. He came for the young you. That's right. Come on. He came for the adolescent you. He came for you when you don't have any makeup on. He came with you without muscles. You at your best, you at your worst. He came for the confused you, the timid you, the silly and self-conscious you, the arrogant, the unemployed or entitled you, the fearful, lonely, guilt or bitter or broken you. God loves the adorable you and the sometimes unlovable you. The single you, the divorced you, the separated you, the widowed you, and the angry, cynical, and cowardly you. Do you see it? The message of Christmas is, behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born, and he is Christ the Lord. And the third thing that Jonah and the Christmas story demand from us is what is our response to these things? What do we do with this? How will I respond to the good news of great joy? And I want to wrap us up today by just suggesting that the model that we follow is actually the humble shepherds. It's not the holier-than-thou Jonah. So uh, Luke, 15, or Luke 2, verses 15 through 20, very familiar verses to you. The angels appear and say it's good news for all people. 
And then in verse 15, it says, then the angels left them, the shepherds. And when they'd gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told you about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, notice what they did, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard, which were just as they had said. So there's two things that the shepherds do and Jonah misses completely. The first thing that the shepherds do is they come and see, which I want to say is is worship. They come and see. And the second thing that they do is they willingly, unlike Jonah, they willingly go and tell, which I'm calling discipleship. You see, perhaps the greatest tragedy of the book of Jonah is that Jonah knew about God and Jonah knew a part of God, but he clearly didn't really know God or maybe he understood things about God, but he didn't quite accept them. Because the reality is, if you dig into the story of Jonah, it's not just his hatred and his fear of the Ninevites that keep him from wanting to go. Do you remember the reason that Jonah says, I I didn't want to go, God? He says, God, I didn't want to go because I know how you are, God. I know that you are kind to people that don't deserve it. In fact, Jonah quotes God's word back to God. He says, God, I know you're gracious and compassionate, and you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You allow those who turn to you, you relent from your punishment from them. And Jonah says, I didn't want to go to the Ninevites because, God, I knew you were going to love those Ninevites. And if you love them, that I would have to love them too, and it's more than I could do, God. And so he actually stays away. He knows about God. He knows about God's justice. He knows about God's holiness, which are powerfully true. But he misses the fact, even though he knows the verse, he misses the fact that God is kind and compassionate as well. The angels hear the message, and what do they do? They come and see. And what do they do? They bow and they worship. You see, here's the thing. God loves us just the way we are. That's what that list is all about. But you know what else? God loves us too much to let us stay the way we are sometimes, right? He loves us too much to leave us in our sin. So he invites us to come and see who he really is. And when we really understand who Jesus is, it causes us to worship him. And that's what we see in the shepherds. But it's not just that. We also see a form of discipleship. In other words, they want to grow closer to God. Why do I say that? I say that because look what they do. They go and tell, right? They go and tell the others around them. God in his infinite wisdom chose just the right people to see that first Christmas message, right? He didn't entrust the educated, the religious, the prestigious. It was the willing and the humble that God called Are you willing and humble? Because God can do all kinds of things with someone that is willing and humble. His love is for the whole world. And he invites us in. Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost. And he invites us into his mission as well. And whether those are kids that we'll never meet in Mali, or whether it's our neighbor or our relative that's coming this year that may be a little hard to deal with, God says, I came for them all, and I invite you into my message to make me known in the world. Let's pray.
God, thank you so much for your message. It wasn't new at Christmas. God, you'd been shouting it through your prophets and even through your law for generations. And Father, while we missed it, we thank you that you made it loud and clear in sending your son, Jesus Christ, to come to love us, to die for us, and to call us to be made new in him. Thank you for the transformation that we see in these shepherds. We don't even know their names, God, but we see a a faithfulness in them that we want for ourselves. So if I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here today, would you move into our hearts? Help us, Lord, to, to worship you. Help us to grow closer to you. Help us to join in your great mission to seek and save the lost for the glory of the infant king and our risen Savior, Jesus. Amen.